All right, we're in our study on imprecatory psalms, and we're in Psalm 94. Uh, last week we were uh, back in, in Psalm 80, was it 3? And now we're on Psalm 94, we're moving right along. And these are considered, um, what they're classified as imprecatory, and I know most of you have been here for this study, but simply that is a psalm that invokes God to provide vengeance on his enemies, um, and asks God to do that. Uh, and the word simply imprecatory means to call a curse on someone. Well, we don't do that, uh, but we pray to God to avenge in righteousness, right? And the psalmists, uh, several of them, uh, many of the psalms of David, call for that. And they call for God to, to really put down evil and put down the works of darkness and to judge accordingly. And this psalm is no exception and we're going to read down through, we aren't going to get through the whole psalm tonight. We're probably just the first seven verses. There's a lot here. But let's begin with Psalm 94 and in verse, uh, in verse 1. It says, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs, O God, to whom vengeance belongs, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, render punishment to the proud. Lord, how long will the wicked... How long will the wicked triumph? They utter speech and speak insolent things. All the workers of iniquity boast in themselves. They break in pieces your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. Yet they say, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob understand. Lord, we are grateful for your word. And as we come to this psalm, Lord, a psalm that reminds us that vengeance belongs to you. And Lord, that you will repay. You will be the one to meter out justice that is perfect. And we thank you, God, for the Lord Jesus Christ. For in him we have mercy and we have grace, we have truth. And we thank you for that as well, that we can be reconciled with you. And that your perfect justice was really placed upon Jesus for our sake. Thank you for that. And we pray in his name. Amen. If you want an outline for this psalm, and we'll cover some of these, we're just going to get to point one tonight, but this psalm breaks down into praying to the Lord for justice, and that's the call that goes out here uh, in this psalm. And then there's a warning to the wicked of their danger, and we'll look at that in a future message. Uh, And then accepting God's discipline, and then working with God's justice. And that's how this psalm kind of breaks down. And uh, it provides sort of a, a way of, uh, well, I guess stanzas if you were to sing it. That's what the theme of each one would be. And we're going to pick that up again, uh, learning a little bit about this. Now, um, it doesn't say a time or give an author to who wrote this psalm. And it is included in a series of psalms that deal with the kingly reign of the Lord. And from Psalm 93 up to Psalm 100 and somewhere, like 100, 101, something like that. And in that, it really talks, like the previous one, talks about the Lord who reigns, and he reigns supremely. And then you come to this psalm, and we didn't get down to like verse 20, but um, it talks about um, in, in this psalm of Psalm 94, uh, that we know, and I'm going to look at it, I think I got the wrong one, yeah, it is in verse 20, 
uh, it says, Shall the throne of iniquity, which devises evil by law, have fellowship with you? And so the thought here is that this was a psalm most likely written in a time when the nation of uh, Israel, it was really a divided nation at this point, of the southern kingdom, Judah, um, was, was actually had evil kings. And in particular, the one that fits the timing of this and all that was Manasseh. Um, and in 2 Kings 21, if you wanted to go and read that, I'm not going to read that whole thing there, but you find out that Manasseh comes along. Uh, he didn't do like his father, Hezekiah, and he instead goes and he builds the altars to Baal and worship of Baal, and he does evil, and it's, it's testified that he did great evil during that time, and he caused the nation to follow him in that. And in 2 Kings, uh, well, we can, I guess we'll, I did put it in here. We'll just read a little bit about it here. 2 Kings 21, verse 1, it says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal, and he made a wooden image, as Ahab king of Israel had done. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. Uh, In other words, he was into astrology of some sort, worshipping the heavens. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Interesting that, by the way, that form of idolatry would continue in the Greek Empire and then later also, and it predates, I believe, this incidence as well, but there was this worship of the creation and the heavens and not the creator, right? And that was going on during the reign of Manasseh. He was worshiping, again, the creation of things and all that. Later, the Romans did the same thing, right? And uh, they continue. Anyways, verse 6. Also, he made his sons pass through the fire. And that's a direct reference, most likely, to the worship of Moloch. And that they would uh, try to basically put their sons or their children through the fire and in some cases even laying infants in the arms of a this molten well it was a it was an image a metal image and it would they would heat this thing up to red hot and they would place children in the arms of Moloch an idol what kind of god would you want to worship that requires that right wow and then it says it goes on beyond that practicing soothsaying all right using or used witchcraft, consulted spiritualists or spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. I'm telling you, if there's a way to get a hold of God's anger, he did everything. He was not a good man. He even set a carved image of Asahara and that he had made in the house of the Lord, um, in in which, excuse me, of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gave their fathers, only if they are careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they paid no attention 
But Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. That's not a good commentary on a person's life, and in particular, a leader. Uh, sometimes I feel like we're in a similar world, aren't we? We have leaders that stand up and they call good evil and evil good, and they're, they're literally, I think, hell-bent, it would be the term, to go and to tear down anything that even resembles true worship and truth and to create a false god in some form. Sometimes it's just worshiping themselves, right? And we see that very much the same spirit that Manasseh used to seduce people to commit evil is at work today in our world, for sure. We know that that was enough, and God had had enough. There had been kings before him in both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom that didn't follow the Lord wholeheartedly, but God would... Uh, he, he, and even David, the great King David, didn't always follow the Lord perfectly. And yet their direction wasn't like Manasseh. And later, the commentary in Second Kings chapter 24, when the Babylonians came and ransacked Jerusalem and took the uh, Jewish people captive and brought them off to Babylon, God cites the sins of Manasseh as the one that uh, really was the cause of that. It says this, in, the days, in his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years, and he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him raiding bands of Chaldeans, bands of Syrians, bands of Moabites, and the bands of the people of Ammon. And he sent them against Judah to destroy it, and according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by his servants, the prophets. Surely at the commandment of the Lord, this came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also because of the innocent blood that he had shed. For he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. Now I would just say it's a very dangerous thing to do the things that Manasseh did. And what God cites his sin, it is mostly that he committed sin in shedding innocent blood. And I would just say a solemn warning to our modern world that our nations are guilty of shedding a lot of innocent blood. I marvel at the discussion that is going on today along political lines but about the abortion issue, and I understand the, that it is quite a, a heartfelt issue on, on things, but... When it comes down to it, there are those that would be classified, I'd say, in innocent blood in the sense that they have not practiced sin as such from the womb, are being destroyed. A question was asked to our president this week, or to the White House, at least the press corps, um, and to uh, the press secretary was asked, um, does the White House have a comment on on when they should restrict abortion at all. Should it ever be restricted? And they would not comment on that. And I don't say that from a political side, just saying a moral side of that. I think all life is precious from the moment of conception on. Um, and I don't think we should be hiding that message that we shouldn't be, we should be defenders of life and good because God does. And because God more so, listen, he does not hold us guiltless as a nation 
if we have, when we've already gone down that route for the last 50 years and continue to do so. Uh, and I say always with this that things are pardonable. Manasseh could have repented and received the grace of God and it would have actually held off the judgment of God. God is like that. He's gracious. He's merciful. And he will do that with any of us and even with our, with our nation. But we are in a very interesting time, a pivotal time, and I, I think we are welcoming God's judgment on our nation if we, as a people, continue the road we're going. That's why, hopefully, God's people will take a different course, right? Stand differently in this world. Well, praying to the Lord for justice, and that's what he says here um, as, he, as he prays. And again, the backdrop of this is most likely those times when Manasseh was doing this and uh, this call for justice um, and it wasn't so much on the outside nations it was in that that group of people their own leader <clears throat> and again i'm mindful that the lord requires certain things of us and he requires his people to do right now we don't always do right i understand that too but that's what he wants from us and I think it's possible to do right in any given time if we follow the Lord, right? Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Imagine if we did that as a, as a people in the West here and we walked humbly with God and we were committed to treating people justly and mercifully and those things. And I hope you are. I mean that. But listen, in our world today, those are not attributes that are taught anymore and they're not things that are, are really exemplified in people's lives. You just look at what people and who people call heroes today and who people call you know, their idols, so to speak, as they idolize people. And most of them don't fall anywhere near those categories at all opposite of those things the lord takes note of things and he is omniscient he knows all he knows even our actions in the heart and that's important because this psalm deals with some of that again the psalmist here cries for vengeance but he says lord it's your place to bring vengeance and he goes to the right one who can enact vengeance in that way and by the way uh, Manasseh was in charge of a nation, a people, that knew the word of God. And they had that great heritage of the word of God. They had the law of Moses. They had the temple. They had the very place where uh, God had, would meet with his people. And they had prophets that came one after the other and spoke forth the word of God. And yet he ignored those things. Exodus chapter 22 it's interesting here because in Exodus 22, there's all kinds of things that deal with um, how we treat others. And in this section, it says, If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that he... When he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. 
Often when we read through the books of Moses, like the book of Exodus, for example, or later in Deuteronomy, Leviticus, all that, you have this sense that, that God certainly is holy and that he doesn't, he's a distant God almost. Like some people come out of that, reading that and thinking, oh, God wasn't really concerned about the individual. He was just this righteous, fiery God, right? A consuming fire. And that's not at all true. If you read the Bible, he was a God that cared about the heart and he cared about the individual. And he says to them, he says, if you take your neighbor's garment for a payment, like, hey, you know, I'll bring something back to you or whatever, and you trade, you know, a, a token of that. He says, by nightfall, you need to give it back. Imagine if we kept debts like that, like short, <laughs> and we, we didn't require things of people. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Look what he says here. The Lord says, you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy. Whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it. For he is poor and has set his heart on it. Lest he cry out against you to the Lord and it be sin to you. God was so concerned that people dealt righteously with others including strangers, right? Aliens there is referring to foreigners. And there were people that would come into Israel and they would be serving and working and there was a requirement that they would be paid. That would be the, the obligation between the two parties. And he says, don't let the sun go down, right? The day, pay him. And I think that's true. The servant is worthy of his hire. We're told to do that. Don't treat people unjustly. Book of James in the New Testament, James chapter 5, says that, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded. And their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord Sabaoth. That's pretty harsh. James, the, you know, as he, as he talks about that. And that was in the first century. And I think that still goes on today. Uh, don't let that be you, right? I mean, in, on the wrong side of things. Because the Lord has an ear to those who have been treated unjustly, whether it be an employee-employer situation or a national kind of situation or something like that. Exemplify God in those things. And as I said earlier, God is able to judge motives as well as actions. Sometimes we only can see the actions, but God looks right through that and he sees the motives, doesn't he? And that's um, you know Leviticus chapter 19 here he says you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people but you shall love your neighbor as yourself I am the Lord there are some things here that are seen for instance you shall not take vengeance now that that could be a public or something that others would see if you took vengeance on someone else but look at the other parts. God wasn't just concerned about the actions. He says, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. That's the inside, right? How many go around 
bearing grudges. Root of bitterness, right? The Bible says don't let that spring up in you. He says, but you shall love your neighbor. That's an inward thing too, isn't it? It may show itself outwardly, but you're to love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, why? Well, he states it. I am the Lord. That's why. He is the all-existent one. He is. The psalmist here in Psalm 94, he says, you know, vengeance belongs to the Lord. And that is indeed repeated several places in Scripture. All through Scripture, it's repeated. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 32, vengeance is mine and, and recompense. And he goes on to say, their foot shall slip in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them. Sometimes from my perspective, it isn't like that. I don't know if you feel that way. I do. I look out there, and I see evil reigning sometimes. I see people committing terrible things and calling good evil and evil good. And, and you say, like we talked earlier in another imprecatory song, How long, Lord? How long will you not hear? He is hearing. And he does speak. And he does enact vengeance if they do not turn to him for repent in repentance and in faith then his their calamity is on them already matter of fact the bible says the wrath of god abides on us presently if you have not believed on the lord jesus christ right and the wrath of god already is there it hasn't necessarily fallen but it will Deuteronomy 32.41 If I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. In the New Testament, Paul writes, Romans chapter 12. By the way, that's the section of Romans that deals with the service of the believer. Um, You have the the doctrinal uh, part of Romans, and then you have the practical part of Romans. And that's, this falls in that practical part. And good theology should always bring about good living. And in that section, Paul writes, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Uh, I, I'm telling you, I could just park myself on that verse and think about that for a while. We said this this morning, if it is possible as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Then he goes on and says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And what he's saying there is, as give wrath its proper place. It belongs to God, not to you. And I, I, I can tell you that there have been a few times in my life where I've had to walk away from a situation where I've been wronged. And God has given me the grace to do that. There's been other times I, I wish I had walked away, maybe. And I don't know, but I pray that if I ever have to face somebody, maybe that has done a tremendous harm in my life or to someone I love, that I still would be able to leave it with the Lord. Sometimes we don't, though, do we? We want to get ahead of it. And I would just say this, that it isn't our place to judge people for their sin it is god's place and they'll never get away with it if they if they don't repent right vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord and then he goes on to say therefore if your enemy is hungry feed him 
If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know the principle is that, that you can overcome evil with good. And that's what the Lord did. He took the worst of man and the most evil of all our acts, and he did the greatest and best of all works at the cross. And it was there that he paid for our sins. He overcame evil with good. And he says we are to do the same. Do that. Randy, I lost my place. Can you click one slide ahead? There you go. Hebrews 10.30 For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And then the writer here says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I do think that we need to have a healthy fear of the Lord and realize that that aspect of his nature and his really place as he is the one that will perfectly meter out justice and judgment we have to leave that to him and for our enemies or for those that are his enemies really that's who they are um, they're someday going to fall into his hands and the most scary thing that has ever happened in their life the most terrifying thing is going to be then and that's I don't wish that on my enemies. I don't. I say, Lord, you reach them, and may they repent and turn to you before it's too late. Because you're kind of, you're like that, Lord. You're a gracious God. You can do that. The Lord also, um, he calls here and he says, uh, show yourself, reveal your power and your glory. Shine forth is the term there that we saw in the psalm here. And that is a call, again, for God's light to go forth. And there is an aspect of his light going forth in mercy, but also in judgment. Man needs both. It's the same idea of when the Lord revealed himself to Moses. Deuteronomy 33.2, And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand came a fiery law for them. Imagine seeing that, right? Power in that. Habakkuk prays the same thing. In Habakkuk chapter 3, and it says a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigenoth. And he says, O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now, I like that prayer. In wrath, remember mercy. By the way, if God didn't remember mercy, we'd all be consumed. There wouldn't be anything left. As soon as Adam sinned and Eve sinned, they would have been annihilated and God could have just folded the whole thing up and started again. But he didn't. Even... In wrath, he remembers mercy. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Param. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from his hand, and there his power was hidden. 
And before him went pestilence and fever followed at his feet. And, uh, and Habakkuk is, is just praying and reminding himself and God, you know, this is who you are, Lord, and being thankful for that. <clears throat> Verse 3 of Psalm 94. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? How many have ever asked that question, right? I have. I've asked that in my lifetime. You can imagine in the previous generations and the times that people did even sometimes I think times in our world where great wickedness has reigned and millions of people have suffered at one time and died sometimes at the hands of very evil people and you say how long will the wicked how long will the wicked triumph there appeared to be a winning side and it wasn't the side of good and yet we know that God will um, be merciful in those things. Exodus chapter 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And right there, the the people are reminded again of the nature of how God is. He's long-suffering. He's merciful. Um, And even in the times of Moses, when you think about that, he was in the last generation uh, of the wandering uh, in the wilderness, obviously, and they were about to enter into the land of Canaan, and you go into the book of Joshua and you see, uh, for instance, Jericho falling and all its uh, people in, the, in Jericho. I think there was something like 40,000 or whatever in Jericho. And uh, women, children, uh, men, they all died, the exception of Rahab and those that were in her house. That scarlet cord, a picture of the blood of Christ, right? And by faith, she was saved. But you say, well, it just seems like God didn't give him a chance. But if you go back through Scripture, the pronouncement of judgment on the Canaanites and on Jericho being a Canaanite city occurred over 400 years before that. And the cup of the Amorites was not yet full. That's the part of what the book of Genesis talks about too. And, you know, you look at that, and it's 400 years that God waited to judge And finally the time came. And even in the book of Joshua, you think about that. They come and they march up. And first of all, gathering for three days on the other side of Jordan. Before God would allow them to go over into the land. And to go uh, into that land on dry ground. And all of that. And there was a space of three days for the people of Jericho who knew what was going on. Because the Bible says the city was straightly shut up. It was all sealed up because of the children of Israel. They knew what was going on. They had also known that 40 years before that, the greatest empire on earth lost its military in the Red Sea. Pharaoh and his his army swallowed up, right? And when you think about that and you say, they knew what God was like and they knew their time was coming and yet they did not repent, at least all but Rahab and those with her. And you go on and you look at that. God gave them 400 years. Then he gave them three days. And then they cross over. And then they march around the city. That's, and they, How long was it that they marched around the city? 
Seven days. Seven days. A full week God gave that city time to repent. And then on the seventh day, how many times they march around again? Seven times. And you know, any I believe this, any given time, at any step of that, the city could have repented in dust and ashes and said, oh, we violated the holiness of God and we need salvation. And we turn to the, the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we follow him. And they would have been grafted into Israel. Because there was provision for them to do that. They would have had an inheritance in that land even. As we know later, that was the case in several times, instances of that. They could have, what they, the term is proselyte, convert to Judaism. Could have done that. They didn't. Later, Rahab would be grafted in. And she's in the lineage of Jesus Christ, in Matthew chapter 1. And you know also Ruth, another one. She was part of a cursed city. And you go our cursed people. And again, the grace was seen. God is a God of mercy. He's a merciful God. And my friends, we're warned in the end times. We're, in, we're warned that men will be lovers of themselves and pleasure more than lovers of God. And we're going to, I think, live in a world, if we are indeed in those last days, I, I don't know that. I don't know God's timing perfectly. It would be just like God to let things continue to go for another thousand years. I don't see how. I think we'll kill ourselves before then. But I will say this, that, that God is a merciful God, long-suffering, slow to anger, but not forever. Luke chapter 18, Jesus reminded his, those present, he said this, Then he spoke a parable to them, that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. One of the things that we, as his people, probably lack is prayer. And we have always to pray. Because when you, when you pray, one of the things that happens when you come to God in prayer, you first of all recognize who he is and who we are. And, and it puts things in the right perspective. And when you start your day with prayer or end your day with prayer, I'll tell you, it puts things in their right perspective around us. When we are to pray and say, Lord, your will be done, right? We're saying, God, I want to do what you want me to do and abide by your rules and live the way you want me to live. When we say your kingdom come, right? We are asking for him to uh, work his plan and a firm reminder that in the end, he is going to have his way and reign. He goes on to say this, saying, there was a certain in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? Here the, the contrast is so stark that even an unjust judge sometimes does the right thing. Doesn't have the right motives, 
He just didn't want this widow bothering him anymore, but he still did the right thing. He says, how much more the Lord God, the judge of all the earth, who always does right. Of course he'll avenge. Of course he will deal the way things need to be dealt with. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Boy, that's a good question, isn't it? I will say yes, he will. There will be those that will call on his name and are calling on his name. And I want to be found in that group of people when he calls us to himself and he does that. And again, as I said earlier, there I could go on further in these. I've run out of time here, but he's for the widow. He's for the orphan. It says here in that section we read in, in Psalm 94 that these evil rulers are actually slaying widows and the fatherless. Oh, watch out, because you're putting your finger in the eye of God when you do that. And over and over again, the Bible um, talks about how God was for... He actually wrote that right in his law. And you look up some of those references sometime in the law where he commanded his people to take care of the fatherless and the widow and to come to their aid in the stranger that was in the land. And I think the most beautiful illustration of that scene is when you come to the story of Ruth and you have Boaz, who is a righteous man. He is a man that's following God and he leaves the corners of his field untouched. And that was part of the law. They were told that when you harvest your field, leave some. And when the corners were not to be touched so that the stranger and the widow, the fatherless could have something to eat. And we have Ruth who's gleaning. Ruth doing her part, Boaz doing his part, God bringing it all together. And that's what we do, right? We hope in that. Father, thank you for your word. And we know that you are God who hears and understands and you have mercy. And you have grace given. Lord, help us to be like that as well. And I do pray, Lord, for those in our world today, in our own country, many that are really just deciding to do great evil acts and evil things. And, oh, Lord, twisting your word. May you have mercy on them. And may we rely on the very fact that, God, you will have the last say on all things. And may many come to saving faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.